Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. I'm pleased to be here with Philippe Lemoine. Am I saying that right? Yeah, about right. Of all the guests I've had, you're certainly the most French. I Probably, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> you know, in Wuhan, a lot of people ask me here if I'm French. Oh, really? Yeah, I wonder if there's a way I can take that as a compliment. Trust me, there is. I always take it as a compliment when people notice that I'm French, so so should you, even if you're not. Yeah, how so? What are the what are the virtuous qualities of, of Frenchness? Oh, man, you know, look, we, I don't think we have enough time, so we should probably focus on the <laughs> topic at hand, right? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so... Yeah, the last time you were on was in 2020 on the abuses and limitations of scientific authority. That's the third most popular episode I've had so far. I mean, it's a small podcast. None of these episodes are very popular, but still third out of like 35 episodes. And it's a very, very solid episode. Oh, that's cool. So do check that out if you haven't already, because I, I do think it's one of the better episodes. Long in coming has been this uh, sequel, and we wanted to talk about foreign policy and sort of the philosophical underpinnings of differences in foreign policy, particularly as relates to the Russo-Ukraine war. So tell me what you're thinking about this. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so um, I guess as a way of introduction, I should explain, you know, there's a distinction that's drawn in foreign policy analysis between two big schools of thoughts when it comes to thinking about foreign policy and how foreign policy should be conducted, basically. You have a, a school of thought that's called realism and another that's called idealism, or you know, sometimes in the U.S. context, uh, it's called Wilsonianism because President Wilson is seen as one of the main representatives of that tradition. And of course, you know, both realists and idealists come in different stripes, but I think it's a useful way of thinking about because those traditions they, they do correspond to something real and i think it's this distinction is analytically helpful to to talk and think about foreign policy so realists basically don't think that a country's foreign policy should reflect its internal values they think that a country's foreign policy should be conducted so as to maximize the country's security and economic well-being but you know it, it shouldn't reflect its internal values. Shouldn't seek to promote them abroad, um, at least not directly. What this means is that realists tend to have no qualms cooperating with regimes that have a completely different ideology from theirs, as long as um, they think it serves the national interest. And again, they have a rather narrow conception of the national interest. Again, it's mostly reduced to security and economic well-being. So, you know, they, they think of the national interest in very material terms. So they have no qualms, you know, like, again, in the West, you know, when you say a different ideology, mostly it means non-liberal regimes. And of course, those also come in different stripes. So realists tend to have no qualms cooperating with such regimes if they think that it's conducive to more security for their states and serves the uh, economic interest of their population. And they're also very skeptical of efforts to transform other regimes. So 
And again, those can, it can go from economic assistance, conditional on political reforms to full-scale armed interventions to do regime change. So there are different ways of doing like regime transformation. Really tend to be very skeptical of all of those. They're skeptical not only that it's a good idea, because they think they're skeptical that it serves the national interest to engage in that kind of practice. And they're also skeptical that it actually works. They're inclined to say that even a country as powerful as the U.S. has only a limited, limited, very limited means of transforming another country's internal values, because they think that those values are primarily determined by endogenous processes, endogenous to those countries, you know, and, and so you know, very deep historical processes and that you can't just come from the outside and no matter how powerful you are, it's going to be very difficult to affect those in a very meaningful way. And idealists, by contrast, they disagree with that and they think that country's foreign policy should reflect its values. So, you know, if you're talking about Western leaders here, those are liberal values. So they think that it's important that our foreign policy, you know, I say our because it's it's a Western thing, you know. So obviously the U.S. is the main player here. So promote individual rights, free markets, democracy, that sort of things. And, you know, another way to put it is that they have a broader conception of the national interest than realists do. They think that having foreign policy practice that reflects those values is part of the national interest. And so they do tend to support efforts at regime transformation Again, just like realists, idealists come in very different stripes. So, you know, some will support actual armed interventions to do regime change in some cases. Others will support more subtle efforts to affect regime transformations abroad. But they're much less skeptical of that type of efforts than realists. And they think it serves the national interest to use foreign policy as a tool to transform other regimes, to make them more like ours, to make them embrace more of our values, like the stuff I was just talking about. And, and those people, they also tend to be very skeptical of cooperation with non-liberal regimes. They think that we should reduce cooperation with non-liberal regimes to a minimum and basically engage in some kind of containment, which again is more or less aggressive depending on which idealist we're talking about. You know, they think that full-on cooperation should be restricted to to other liberal democracies. And we should, like, as much as possible, not really engage non-liberal regimes. Again, those two are, are extremes. You know, they're ideal types. If you take any particular Western leader in, in the past, like, few decades, any of them is going to fall somewhere in between, on, you know, on that spectrum. So, you know, there are some period where realism has tended to, to dominate more. You know, at least we've been closer to the realist end of the spectrum and other periods where we've been closer to the idealist end of the spectrum. And, you know, I think since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've gotten closer to the idealist end of the spectrum. I think idealism is, is especially of the most extreme kind, is, is ill-conceived and, and results in, in bad decisions. So that, that's kind of what I'd like to talk about. I want to unpack a couple of things that you said in there. One is, couldn't you have idealistic morality and, and think of your country's interests in a moralistic sort of way and still be skeptical about the efficacy of 
regime change and this kind of thing. Like some of these things that you have in these packages, you could mix and match some of them. It's not like you have to take like all of these items in each of the lists like necessarily have to go together. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. That's part of what I meant when I said that any particular leader, actual leader, Western leader in the past few decades has been somewhere, you know, has combined elements of both idealism and, and realism. And But also I think you're right that in theory, you could have a broader conception of the national interest where it's construed in moral terms and not just in strictly material terms. And yet, for empirical reasons, be skeptical of the effectiveness of the kind of thing that, that idealists tend to uh, promote. So uh, certainly logically, you know, it, it's totally possible to, to mix and match elements from both traditions and in practice, people do that to some extent. But the reason why this distinction, I think, is still useful is that, you know, as a matter of fact, as a matter of historical fact, the extent to which people do this mixing and matching is, has been limited. And you can still usefully talk about people being more on the realist end or more on the idealist end. So those are more of like description of, of two traditions. But, but, you know, on that point, you know, I should also note that the difference you know, in, in Western foreign policy, the difference between idealists and realists is not that idealists believe in individual rights, democracy, free markets, whereas realists do not. Typically, you know, to, a, to various degrees, but all of recent Western leaders have believed in those values. I'm more on the realist end, but I very much believe in individual rights, democracy, and, and free markets, and that sort of things. It's just that realists don't think that this has embracing those values as any obvious practical implications for the way you you should do foreign policy, whereas idealists very much tend to think that it, it does. I was under the impression, like if you asked me what, what political realism was in foreign policy, I would have said the idea that foreign policy is basically about amoral things like balancing power because the states are in some sort of Hobbesian state of nature and there's no real overarching morality to appeal to. It doesn't really apply in this domain, but you're defining it in a much more modest way than that. Yes. Yeah, so, so and, and this is actually connected to what I was about to say. Well, first, realism about foreign policy is not the same thing as realism in international relation theory. If you take the main, the most influential sort of realism in international relation theory in the, in the past few decades, it's Kenneth Wolf neorealism. You know, it, it's a descriptive theory about international politics, but it doesn't have any obvious normative implications for the way you should conduct foreign policy. What it says basically is that because the international system is in a, a state of anarchy, by which they mean that there is no central authority that can serve as the ultimate arbitrator of disputes between sovereign states. Because of that, this fact, you know, about the international system creates certain constraints for states, you know, which if they ignore, they're going to get punished. But of course, realist about international, you know, in, in the sense of international relation theory, so especially at least those neorealists that I'm talking about right now, they acknowledge that there are other forces other determinants to the foreign policy of an actual state. So 
the fact that those constraints exist doesn't mean that political leaders of, of sovereign states are always going to act according to those constraints because there are other factors that are going to determine their foreign policy. It's just that when they do ignore them, they tend to get punished, which is the mechanism by which those constraints influence the, the behavior of states. So for instance, a realist in international relation theory would say that Putin arguably in invading Ukraine has kind of ignored those constraints and now he's getting punished for it. So it's so you know you, the point is that you can be a realist about international in the sense of international relation theory. Um and yet uh you know it, it doesn't mean that you're gonna try to explain the behavior of any particular state at any particular time, that you're gonna try to make it fit this uh this framework, because again, this framework is just, it's just talking about constraints uh, created by the international system on the behavior of states, but it doesn't have any obvious implication or any predict, it doesn't make any obvious prediction about the behavior of a particular state at a particular time. Where, so, you know, uh, realism about foreign policy, it's more of a normative view, you know, it's about like, it's about what's, um, statesmen should do, you know, how they should conduct foreign policy. It, it doesn't purport to explain what people do. It, it, it more like, it's more like it, it purports to tell people how they should conduct foreign policy. So, so, you know, and, you know, like I said, this distinction is not as clear cut as I make it sound because there are different kinds of relation of realism, even in international relation theory. And, you know, even realists in international relation theory sometimes, you know, mix together the descriptive and the normative. So it's it's not always, you know, they're kind of also guilty for this confusion. But nevertheless, I think the confusion, the the distinction exists, and it's important to keep in mind. Even though, again, it, it's not you know as clear cut as this little like this short presentation make it sound. So, uh, yeah, you you can. Um, you know, you can, in theory, you can even be a, a realist about international, in the sense of international relation theory, that is recognized that those constraints exist because of the nature, the anarchic nature of the international system, and yet be pretty idealist in foreign policy. Like, in particular, if you're a state that, you know, is pretty secure, like the U.S., for instance, that's probably one of the reasons why the U.S. has been traditionally more idealist, actually, is that you have two oceans, you know, that separates you from the rest of the world. You have Canada to the north, which, you know, if they step on your foot, they're going to apologize. So, And, you know, Mexico is very weak to the south. So the U.S. is a very secure state. When you're very secure, you can afford to be more idealistic in your foreign policy. And you can so you can even recognize that the anarchic nature of the international system create those, generate those constraints that I was talking about on state behavior, and yet advocate a more idealist foreign policy because you think that in your particular circumstances at this particular time, in the particular context that you're concerned with, those constraints are not that important and, you know, for, for your foreign policy. And so you can afford to have a more idealist kind of foreign policy. So I, I think one of the reasons why the U.S. has historically been more idealist in its foreign policy than other countries is that it's just historically extremely lucky. Again, because of geography, 
because it's so powerful. That makes it very secure, which means that you know it's going to take a lot more before you really suffer from ignoring the constraints that realist in international relation theory talk about. I have my own account of what happened with American foreign policy. So I think basically it was the fact that the Cold War came right on the hills of World War II, permanently enlarged the military apparatus. Unlike World War I, there was a demobilization after World War I. But World War II, there was this anxiety with, with the Soviet Union right after World War II had ended. And there was no clear end to that crisis. And by the time it was oh, like clearly, clearly over with the fall of the Soviet Union, everything had been completely transformed. And we were all over the world worried about Soviet aggression. And then, and then, you know, the war on terror just had to fit in that mold that we had sort of created in response to that. But I think that it was really that it was the fact that we had just had World War II and that there was no gap where we could demobilize and relax and the bureaucracy that we created during that war became permanent and drove policy. That's my theory. Yes. I mean, I think there's definitely some truth to this. So uh, I don't think it's inconsistent with my view. I broadly agree with this. American foreign policy tradition is very interesting because it went from one extreme to the next. Basically, the U.S. went from being very isolationist to being very involved in, in world affairs. But what's interesting, I think, is that the underlying justification in both cases has remained broadly the same. So if you go back to the founding of the U.S., there's like the famous Washington warning to his successors that the U.S. should, you know, basically do commerce with other nations, but avoid being entangled in foreign alliances, you know, especially, of course, in Europe, because that's basically where you're, where the U.S. originated from in both like terms of the people who created it and also the intellectual traditions and everything. And, you know, the idea really for a very long time in U.S. thinking about those things is that you sow yourself as, you know, morally superior to, to the rest of the world, precisely because you weren't engaging in, in this, all of those balance of power games, etc. because you didn't have to, because again, you were isolated from, you were secure because of geography in particular. You thought of yourself as the fact that you don't engage in that sort of stuff, which of course, very quickly became wrong at least in the Western Hemisphere, but it was still limited to the Western Hemisphere. But, you know, it didn't really affect the way in which you thought about yourself. You saw that as a sign of American exceptionalism, and you really saw that in moral terms. And that was the justification for a very long time for American isolationism. You know, again, it was, in many ways, you thought about this, I think, in moral terms. So, you know, if you start getting involved in those, you know, in the affairs of European nations, etc., is going to have like a morally corruptive effect on you for the same reason as European nations were engaged in that sort of practices were morally corrupted by, by it. And this was, I think, ideologically, this was an important part of the justification for 
isolationism. And, and you know, this was a very powerful tradition. You know, after World War One, Wilson wanted to end this, and it didn't work. Congress refused to ratify the treaty that created the League of Nations, and you remained isolationist. Not really in practice, but, you know, at least symbolically, and you didn't get involved in the League of Nations. It it went beyond symbolism, but, you know, it doesn't mean that at this point already you were involved in European politics, but just not as directly as someone like Wilson would have wanted. And, and, you know, this changed after World War II. What's interesting is that when it did change, you didn't really abandon the doctrine of exceptionalism. You know, you could have thought that because suddenly you started getting involved in, you know, foreign alliances, the affairs of the rest of the world, etc., you would abandon this doctrine of American exceptionalism because this had been the thing that was grounding isolationism before. So you might have thought that as you abandon isolationism, you would also abandon exceptionalism. But in fact, you didn't. It's just that this doctrine of American exceptionalism started to play a different role. You know, in the same way that it had served to justify isolationism, it started to be used, to be put to use to justify what I call the messianic strain in foreign policy that's particularly strong in the U.S. So, you know, you got involved with the rest of the world, but you wanted to have a transformative effect on the rest of the world. So, you know, before the idea was that you would stay isolated from the rest of the world except for commerce so as not to be corrupted by the rest of the world. And when suddenly you thought rightly or wrongly that you didn't have a choice but to get involved in the affairs of the world, you said, okay, we're going to change the world instead of being changed by the world. Because we are exceptional, we're going to see ourselves as a force in the world that can change the rest of the world to make it more like us. And and so, uh, interestingly, in a sense, the same ideological foundation that had been used to justify isolationism has been used to justify engagement with the rest of the world, the end of isolationism. Because now, you know, again, you saw your exceptionalism, you know, as something that should be exported and promoted abroad to make the world, you know, the way in which you're not going to be corrupted by the rest of the world when you're engaging with it is by making it more like yourself. And, and, and this is still a very important aspect. It's largely implicit, but, you know, this idea is, is I think, as deep root in the U.S. and is actually very important in the way you, you conduct foreign policy. Like I'm the stand-in for all of all of the United States. That's okay, though. I was going to say that I think the significance of the of the Washington farewell speech it might be overstated somewhat because at the time the U.S. was very weak and was very vulnerable to European powers, and even the freaking Canadians burned the White House to the ground. They weren't apologizing for stepping on our feedback then, you know, so we had very good practical reasons to stay out of, of European affairs, you know, at the time that we didn't have even later in the 19th century. And I also, I guess I, I wanted to say earlier, if you want to push me away from idealism and toward realism, it definitely helps for you to call it Wilsonianism because I can't stand Wilson. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, you're, you're right on the the stuff about the Canadian. It's kind of a caricature, but I just couldn't resist the temptation. You know, I would say, though, that, yeah, sure, you were a weak nation. But again, geography meant that I don't think it's true that you were, you, you were like facing any existential threats. 
you know, even the, the 1812 war, I don't think it was that. I'm sure they burned down the White House, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think it was an existential threat in the way many other states in the world, you know, face them at the same time. You know, I mean, Poland had already disappeared at the time precisely because, you know, the kind of threat it faced was of a very different nature than the kind of threats you did. Even at the time when I agree, you were, of course, much weaker. But also, you didn't stay that weak for very long, though, you know, because the U.S. was a very dynamic nation that grew very fast. And, you know, you know the Monroe Doctrine is like 1821. At this point, you already had ambitions on the Western Hemisphere and you had the means to those ambitions. But I, th- I don't think it changed. And what's interesting is that even as you were engaging in the kind of practices that in the ideology you would regard as like, you know, corrupt European practices, and you were doing like to some extent the same thing in your hemisphere, it didn't really affect the discourse, you know, the ideology. I don't want to overstate this because, you know, it's easy to fall into a caricature with this stuff and think that it explains everything. And of course, that's that's not true. You know, it's more subtle than that. It's just not true that the U.S. foreign policy has been purely determined by this kind of like missionism. And, you know, so I, I, that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that compared to other nations, this strain of messianic foreign policy has played a bigger role and it remains somewhere, always somewhere in the background. And it does inform even realist-minded, you know, American policymakers on foreign policy. That's what I mean. You know, on the whole, I think it's a bad thing. Uh, I think it has led you to do stupid shit, as Obama used to say. The the problem with like this very moralistic way of thinking about foreign policy, and here I'm I'm going beyond, you know, the American doctrine of exceptionalism is so you know psychologists sometimes make this distinction between when they try to explain people's actions but you know people in foreign policy analysis have used that distinction to to analyze foreign policy they make this distinction between the logic of consequences and the logic of appropriateness so basically people use the logic of consequences when their actions are determined by a kind of like consequentialist calculus. They think about the likely consequences of the different actions that are available to them, how they value the different possible outcomes, how likely each of those possible outcomes are, you know, is depending on, on the available option they pick, action they pick. And then that's how they choose what they're going to do. But, you know, there is another way in which people act that's when people use the so-called logic of appropriateness. And then, you know, when people decide what they're going to do, they don't really think in terms of consequences and probabilities and how they value the different possible outcomes depending on what they do. Rather, they think about, okay, given the kind of person that I am or the kind of state that I am, what is the appropriate, the right thing to do for me to do? And, you know, Mike Mazar, for instance, has written an excellent book on the decision to to invade Iraq in 2003 that I strongly recommend to anyone who's interested in foreign policy and diplomatic history, but mostly on how foreign policy is made. It's uh, it's called Leap of Faith. Uh, it was published like last year, I think. And what he argues is that... So, you know, one thing that's really interesting, when you look at the decision to invade Iraq, nobody actually knows exactly when it was decided. He's done interviews with people in the Bush administration and they either disagree or they 
they are incapable of saying, okay, on this day during this meeting, that's when the decision to actually invade was made. It was really a diffuse process. And interestingly, you know, if we're going to come back to the conflict in Ukraine and what led to it, the decision to expand NATO in the 90s was similar. There wasn't any principles committee where the decision was made. And it's the same thing formally, I mean. And it's the same thing for the decision to invade Iraq. And so what Mazar argues is that the reason why, when people decided to invade Iraq, and again, you know, there wasn't any particular moment where the decision was formally made. It just happened eventually. And, you know, what he argues is that what drove the decision-making in this case was more like the logic of appropriateness than the logic of consequences. Because one thing that's really striking when you look at the debates inside the administration during that time is that people weren't really thinking all that much about the consequences. Like there was a group in the State Department that produced several volumes about, you know, what you were going to do once you were in Iraq, but it was mostly ignored. There was not a lot of like interaction with the rest of the administration between those people and the rest of the administration. But people like Rumsfeld, you know, said, because, you know, we forget this, but Rumsfeld was not actually a national build, builder kind of guy. You know, and in general, the Bush administration, when they arrived, they, they opposed, you know, nation building. And so Rumsfeld was like, you know, we're just going to go there, remove Saddam, and then, you know, in two or three months later, we'll just put the Iraqi in charge and that will be it, you know. And the thing is that they thought about the decision to invade Iraq mostly in moral terms. You know, like, you know, Saddam had to go. There was a kind of like feeling sense of urgency uh, after 9-11 that, you know, you had to use for various reasons. You know, there was uh, to, to a large extent, the reason why you invaded Iraq was that you needed to find a big guy in the room and kick his ass in front of the whole world just to show the world that you were still on top of things. You know, it sounds dumb, but really, I, I think if you look at, if you read memoirs and look at the literature on how the decision was made, it wasn't anything like a consequentialist calculus. It was something like this. You know, there was this feeling that it's something that you had to do. And then, of course, you know, people would like, you know, people already decided it was a good idea. And then after that, they would look for justification and, you know, they would often cost that in a in consequentialist terms, but I don't think that's what really drove the decision. I think it was more like post facto justification when the decision, at least in an emotional sense, had already been made. In, in, you know, the thing with idealists in general is that their actions tend to be dictated by this logic of appropriateness more than the the logic of consequences. A lot of critics of the war criticize the decision to invade Iraq because they see it as a cynical decision, and I think it's completely wrong. It's the opposite. It wasn't cynical at all. I think, you know, people, especially on the left, you know, people who criticize American interventions think that the people who promote that type of stuff are cynics who care about stuff like oil, you know, and, and promoting like American U.S. corporations, interests and that sort of things. And honestly, you know, I'm not saying that this type of thing never plays any role, but for the most part, it's completely wrong. American interventions are, to a large extent, mostly determined by idealist type of considerations. Those people are not cynics. In fact, I would much prefer they were cynics because I think they would do, you know, stupid shit a lot less often. <laughs> I think it's a big mistake that critics of U.S. interventions abroad often make. And so 
force of the decision of Iraq was, I think, driven by this logic, the logic of appropriateness. It was just people convinced themselves, and they were really convinced of that, that it was the right thing to do. You know, it was, there was this, a feeling, a sense of urgency, and that people came up with stuff that they also believed to, you know, the stuff about the weapons of mass destruction. People in the administration really believed it. It doesn't mean they didn't lie, you know, they didn't exaggerate the strength of the evidence they had about this. But it's a mistake to think that they didn't believe this stuff. But mostly, this is something that was, it was a case of like a decision in search of justification rather than anything else. Doesn't mean they didn't believe it. But, and, and you know, what, what drove the thing was really this logic of appropriateness. Interestingly, the decision to expand NATO in the 90s was, I think, also primarily determined by this logic of appropriateness. Basically, people thought of it in these terms. They were like, look, after World War II, we kind of like abandoned Eastern Europe to the communists and, you know, agreed to this division. It's actually more complicated than that, but what actually happened, but, you know, that's kind of like how people see it. We abandoned Eastern Europe, let's agree to communist domination of this region, and now we need to correct this historic injustice. You know, now we're not going to do it again. Now that the Soviet Union has collapsed, we need to bring those guys into the West and so that's why we have to do NATO expansion. I think they didn't think enough about the pros and cons, you know, the consequences of this, whether it was really in the interest of the U.S. or even in, in the interest of European security. Lake, you know, was Clinton's national security advisor during his, you know, his first term. And when the decision was made, it was the guy who pushed NATO expansion in the administration because initially it was very much in minority position in the Clinton administration. He explained that one of the things that had a powerful effect on Clinton's view about NATO expansion was when in, I think it was in um, April 1994, I think, when, you know, Eastern European leaders, like especially um, the Solidarność, Valesa and Havel, the Polish, Valesa was a Polish president, Havel was the Czech president, came to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, you know, in Washington, D.C. And they made the case for uh, being admitted into NATO. And apparently, because of the context, you know, this made a big impression on, on Clinton. And, and this illustrates the weight of moral consideration in the decision, you know. And there was really this idea that we had done a historic injustice by abandoning those guys after World War II. And we shouldn't do it again, which you can agree with this without drawing the conclusion that NATO expansion is the right way to avoid this. But, you know, because in this context, NATO expansion was really salient, people made the association. And I think it was, uh, you know, that's, that's how it happened. And again, you know, it's, it's significant, I think, that just as there was no, like, principles committee. So, you know, so people, you know, the principles committee is when the leaders of the different agency in the, U the U.S. government meets um, to to make you know important decisions about foreign policy and national security, and they debate those things and they come to a decision. Some you know for really big important stuff, they have to present the different options to the president to make the final decision. And in the case of NATO expansion, just as in the case of the decision to invade Iraq. The, the normal interagency process was not really followed. That is, that's, you know, in the case of NATO expansion, people realized that it was government policy 
in late 1994. And, you know, they realized it because of speeches that were made by people in the administration in public. And they were like, suddenly, and especially people in the Pentagon, had not really understood that that was government policy, that NATO expansion was government policy, because there had been no formal decision at a principles committee or anything of the sorts. So, you know, it's not surprising that the Russians were surprised when you know that even people inside the U.S. administration were surprised that it was policy. I say that because often people are like, oh, you know, the Russians are no objective reason to be surprised by that NATO expansions uh, was put in motion when it was put in motion. And that's kind of a ridiculous thing to say when you know that even inside the U.S. administration, many people, including the Secretary of Defense, you know, I'm not talking about some you know, underling, you know, of no importance. The Secretary of Defense was surprised in December 1994 to suddenly realize that NATO expansion had become official government policy and he just didn't know before that. He hadn't realized that. So, of course, when you realize this, it's not surprising that the Russians were surprised. And, you know, it was very similar how in the case of the invasion, the decision to invade Iraq, there is not one meeting where the decision was made. It was more of like, a gradual thing where it's really weird what happened, but the normal interagency process was kind of like skirted in some ways. One critique of American foreign policy you get from the left is the thought that there was this planned like world domination after World War II. But I think you'll agree that the U.S. got really super involved in all sorts of countries in all sorts of ways that, you know, I'll use the pronoun since you're using it the we we shouldn't have gotten involved in like I, have you ever read the book the brothers stephen kinzer about alan dulles and john foster dulles oh no I, I haven't i haven't read it okay well i thought you might have but in any event that book details the first couple decades of the cia and the state department working together overthrowing governments that might have been marxist and this kind of thing and well, actually, I guess you could say John Foster Dulles really was a pretty bad actor here. But the general trajectory of American foreign policy, no one anticipated it. Just as no one anticipated when we did the Manhattan Project that there were going to be thousands of nuclear weapons, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, and, and we'd be doing these high stakes sorts of maneuvers, you know, and that elections would be decided based on the missile gap and this kind of stuff, the, the missile gap that didn't exist. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You know, the view that the current U.S. involvement in the world was part of, like, premeditated plan is completely wrong. To a large extent, all of that stuff happened without anyone really anticipating that it would happen. You know, of course, Vietnam is also a case of where kind of, like, ended up having like a huge operation over there that cost a lot of American lives and even more non-American lives. But, you know, if you had known beforehand that it would result in such a large footprint over there, you, you probably would never have started in the first place. You just got drawn into it. And there was this logic, you know, the domino theory and all that stuff that gradually drew you into this, but I wasn't really anticipated. And, you know, in general, I think American involvement in the world is something that happened that immediately after World War II, World War II, people would not have anticipated, including the people who put in motion the policies that would result in this eventually. So, yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with this. You know, so you know, I, I share with the leftists that I'm very critical of American foreign policy, 
in that sense, often I agree with them, but I think in terms of the explanation that they advance, they get almost everything wrong. And then I don't think they really understand why the U.S. does what it does. And I think that if the U.S. were cynical and calculating as they think it is, you know, it wouldn't do a lot of the stuff that they criticize. I got one other question, though, sure. about this distinction between thinking in terms of consequences versus thinking in terms of appropriateness. Mm-hmm. Does that just correspond to to the consequentialist thinking versus deontological thinking or virtue ethic thinking in moral philosophy? So it's, you know, while it is a, a psychological explanation, a descriptive theory about how people make decisions, what is true, I think, is that to a significant extent, people who make decisions by following the logic of consequences tend to make the kind of decision that a consequentialist with the right values, the right, you know, I'm putting that in quotes, make, whereas someone who make decisions following the logic of appropriateness tend to make decisions in accordance with like what a, a deontological theorist would recommend, you know, would say is, is good. But, you know, it gets complicated because, of course, you have many different kinds of consequentialists and many different kinds of deontologists, and there is a lot of room for disagreements on any particular action, you know, particular situation as to what, you know, different consequentialists might disagree and one consequentialist might agree with like one deontologist and and vice versa on any particular issue. So uh, it's not, you know, straightforward, but clearly there there is this, there is some truth to this idea. There is a connection and, and yeah, if you, for the right kind of consequentialist, people will, the people who follow the logic of consequences will be doing the sort of thing that they should do according to consequentialism. And, you know, people who follow the logic of appropriateness are doing what they should do according to at least the right kind of deontologist. You can be a deontologist about individual action, you know, thinking that, you know, what should guide your actions is uh, uh, this kind of like deontological theory while denying that this is the case for states, because states, you know, that's the whole point, you know, underlying ID to underlying to realism in international relation theory, that states evolve in um, in an anarchic international system. And, and the stakes are very high. It's not necessarily a good idea to be a, a deontologist in this type of environment, because, you know, that's your very existence is often at stake and you simply it's not the same as in your um interaction with other individuals within a state when you know that there is a, a central authority to adjudicate disputes if you do what you think is the right thing to do um but you know the other side disagrees or doesn't you, you may just disappear or, or you know millions of people might die you know that's the kind of thing we're talking about here for instance, you know, I, I when I talk about the conflict in Ukraine, there are many different causes for the Russian invasion. But I think, you know, that's in the background. Basically, we have done a lot of stuff and NATO expansion is a big one, but it's it's just one of them. After the end of the Cold War, that even when they were well-intentioned, and often they were, you know, that's another thing where leftists are just wrong. You know, they think that's, the U.S. was just ought to get the Russians. You know, it was ought to get Russia from the beginning. 
and that everything the U.S. did that the Russians didn't like, such as NATO expansion in the 90s, it was done to harm Russia. But it's actually much more complicated. If you look at Clinton, for instance, Clinton generally wanted to help Russia. The problem was that what Clinton thought was in Russia's interest was often not what the Russians thought was in their interest. Something that drove the Russians crazy is that very often Clinton would do something and insist to the Russians, and he actually genuinely believed it, that it was in their interest. But the Russians were like, look, I mean, you know, we're big boys. You can't just tell us what is in our interest. If, you know, if we disagree, you know, you have to acknowledge that. And, and you know, the U.S. would have this attitude, which it often has, that, you know, I think drives a lot of people crazy outside of the U.S. You know, you tend to think that you know better than the rest of the world what's good for them. And, and you know, sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. And if the other side doesn't buy it, it's not going to help. Even if you're right, it's going to result in problems. Like, you, you did a lot of things such as expanding NATO. And it's not, you know, it's a very complicated topic because there are lots of very simplistic things that are said about it. I don't think it's true that in uh, February 2022, Putin invaded Ukraine because at this moment, he was afraid that if it didn't at this moment, then Ukraine would get into NATO and it would be a security problem for Russia. Rather, the sense, the way in which I think NATO expansion played a role is that, you know, the fact that NATO expanded against Russia's wishes affected Russian perceptions of the U.S. intentions toward Russia. It fueled their paranoia. Their paranoia. So I'm not denying that the Russians are paranoid. I'm saying, first of all, to some extent, to a limited extent, they are right to be paranoid because there are people in the U.S. administration who are out to get Russia. This is just true. And, you know, they're not completely stupid, so they can see that. But also... For the most part, there are security concerns, for instance, about NATO expansion. Or they're ill-conceived. You know, NATO expansion does pose a genuine security issue for Russia. You know, I think people are wrong to dismiss that. But it's not a big deal. It's not the big deal that the Russians make it. But nevertheless, you know, people are wrong to think that they're lying about this, that they're not really concerned about this, that they're not really freaked out and really don't really see it as a security concern for Russia. They really do. And I agree that to a large extent... This is a result of paranoia. But my point is that by ignoring their concerns, however ill-conceived they may have been, and to a large extent, I agree they were, we have fueled their paranoia. And when people are paranoid and think you have bad intention toward them, it makes them take aggressive action and do stupid shit, like invading Ukraine. I'm not saying, you know, this is not to say that imperialist strains in Russian foreign policy thinking weren't also important. But those things have existed for a long time. You know, even after, you know, in the 90s, you can find like advisors to Yeltsin say, have a very similar discourse about Ukraine as Putin recently. And yet they didn't invade Ukraine. And it didn't even cross their mind to invade Ukraine at the time. So, you know, that shows that it's not, it's a necessary condition probably to invade Ukraine or, well, probably not, but at least it helped. Not strictly necessary, but it certainly helped. But it wasn't sufficient. You know, similarly for the view that Ukraine is not a real country. I mean, you know, Putin told that to Bush in 2008. Bush was astonished, you know, at the, was at the Booker summit, the NATO summit in 2008. And Bush was trying to convince Putin that it would be a good thing for Russia if Ukraine was part of NATO. You know, it was, again, one of those instances where you try to explain to other people 
what's really in their interest, even if they don't see it that way. And so, and you know, Putin wouldn't have it. And at some point, he just turned to Bush and said, "But George, they were actually good friends." That's another thing people have forgotten. But, but George, you don't understand. You you do realize that Ukraine is not even a real country, right? Like, you know, it was like half of it is stuff that was given by the Bolsheviks, and you know, stuff. All of the stuff that he's been saying recently, he told Bush in 2008, and he already, you know, many people in the 90s and probably him, you know, his, his mentors, Anatoly Sobchak, had the same kind of views in the early 90s. So, you know, this is not new, but it doesn't mean, you know, at the time, you know, there is no evidence whatsoever. And in fact, I think it's categorically false that Putin was seriously considering in 2008 invading Ukraine. I, I think, you know, part of what put them on the path where it started to make sense from their point of view to invade Ukraine, which, you know, I think was a big mistake even from their point of view. But the point is that they got to a point where for them it made sense. And I think it was very similar to what happened in the U.S. in 2002, 2003. They got convinced that they just had to invade Ukraine, that it was there was some kind of imperative to do this, you know, in a very similar way to U.S. decision makers in a run-up to the invasion of Iraq. Their decision was also the result of applying the logic of appropriateness more than applying the logic of consequences. I've been thinking lately about the psychology of like large countries and how difficult it might be for outsiders to have empathy with what they're thinking and feeling. And I got some of this from talking with my wife who's Chinese, you know, I'm, I'm recording from Wuhan and some of her perceptions of world events, she very much takes a very pro-China perspective on things. And, you know, we have some disagreements about that. But one thing that occurred to me is, of course, this is going to be trumped up by state propaganda and everything, but that doesn't mean that we should entirely dismiss it as being sort of fabricated that a lot of countries have long memories for humiliating events in their past. And so my wife will mention, you know, like the opium wars and the five countries invading them. And I think it was 1900, which France was involved too. So you, you did it too. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. The boxer. Yeah. 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 We did it. And so, yeah. So there's still this sense of humiliation and still the sense of like, the world is trying to keep us down. And I can say, but yeah, but over the last 30 years, like the world has been building you up and been praying with you. It's been turning a blind eye to property rights stuff. But anyway, you go on, on on all this stuff. But nonetheless, talking to her made me realize, no, there really is a, such a thing, this historic memory. And it would be foolish to just dismiss that out of hand. as like, oh, that's a bunch of state propaganda or whatever. And in the case of Russia... Now, I know we don't agree on Israel-Palestine, but here's something you might agree with, that, a point that is made that you might think has got something going for it, which is a lot of people will say, oh, look at Israel, big, powerful Israel, little, tiny Palestine. Israel is the Goliath here, and uh, ironically, and Palestine is David, you know, but then the point will be made. But yeah, you look at the broader Arab Muslim world, and now it looks like Israel is the underdog, and that gives a different perspective to it. And you, I think you can say something similar about Russia in both these senses. So, so in the one sense is if Russia is like enormous on a map, but if you look at their economy, 
their economy is the, the size of Spain and they're compared to all of NATO and the U.S., they're tiny. They can easily see themselves as the David versus the Goliath here, even though it looks the other way around. If you just look at, at Russia, Ukraine, the other thing is that Russia has its own long memory and they're not seeing this in the light of the last 20 or 30 years only. I think, and you can tell me what you think of this speculation. I think a lot of it has to do with a fear of national decline. And this is an important difference, I think, between China and Russia that actually makes me more afraid of Russia than China. China, I think they feel like, you know, we're getting more powerful and time is on our side. Whereas I think Russia senses weakness and senses decline. And they have, there's a kind of desire to relive the glory days of the great patriotic war of fighting Nazis in Eastern Europe, which they saw as a good thing. So I, I think those psychological factors are playing in this somehow. I'm, I say this as someone with no expertise at all on this. I'm just speculating based on my own observations. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're definitely right. You know, the, the stuff about China is a point I also often make. You know, people in the West just have no clue. I mean, most of them have never even heard about that stuff. You know, they don't know what the opium wars are. They have no idea about the, nine, the 190, you know, uh, boxers interventions were just, you know, but this stuff in, in China, and, and as you say, you know, of course, propaganda plays on that. But it doesn't mean that people don't really feel it, including the people doing the propaganda. And I can guarantee you that they do. And it's the same thing in Russia. But the point, you know, the stuff you say about empathy, this is really a key point I was actually getting at. So people dismiss those concerns. Similarly, in the case of the Chinese and the case of the Russian, they think that they don't really believe this stuff. And they just say that because they're like bad imperialists who want to just take Ukraine. And you know, this is just wrong. And the reason why people can't see it is precisely because of a lack of empathy. So as I was just saying, those security concerns that Russia has vis-a-vis, for instance, in particular NATO expansion, they are not entirely, but to a large extent, ill-conceived, you know, widely exaggerated. And the results of paranoia. I do not deny that. But the problem is that when you use the logic of appropriateness, if you're convinced And again, you may be right, as I think you are in this case to a large extent, that those concerns are illegitimate, are morally illegitimate because they have no sufficient basis in reality. The conclusion people use that kind of logic draw is that we should just ignore them. But I think that's a big mistake because even if those concerns are in fact ill-founded, as long as people really have those concerns, you have to take them into account because if you don't, well, you get into the kind of shit show we are in right now. I think that if we had taken their concerns more seriously, we could probably have avoided the situation. And it's a bad idea in general to just dismiss other people's concerns just because you think they're ill-conceived, even if you're right. To a large extent, it is people who say that the Russians are paranoid about NATO expansion are right. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, this is a confusion. When, people, when I say that, people tell me, oh, but they were not really threatened by uh, NATO expansion. And, you know, with some minor reservations, I agree with this. It just doesn't follow that you should dismiss this concern because it's a concern they really have. Whereas I think they should, even when those concerns are in fact ill-founded. So this is, a, this is, I think, a very important point. And that's also a reason why I often defend whataboutism in foreign policy. You know, 
people are really angry when you point out that you know so you know Russia invades Ukraine and people point out that well you know the US has invaded Iraq you know illegally before and you didn't you know we didn't sanction it like the way we do Russia you know of course one reason is just we can't because the US is too powerful as Russia is weak but you know there is a validity to this to raising this kind of points, you know, this kind of comparison. There is one kind of whataboutism that's just a bad idea, that's just mistaken, you know. It's wrong to say that because the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, you have no ground to criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's not what I'm saying. I agree that this is, this is not a good argument. This, so this is a bad kind of whataboutism. And to the extent that people engage in whataboutism to draw this kind of conclusion, I agree that, that this is mistaken. But the reason why I think it's nevertheless important to point out to people that to understand that we are foreign policy, I mean, we, the West, we have contributed by our actions since the end of the Cold War to putting the Russians on a path where also, of course, because of endogenous processes in Russian society. Again, I'm not saying that we we are the only reason this happened. This would be ridiculous. But they have gotten to a point, they have reached a point where it seemed to them that they felt that they had they had to invade Ukraine. And they re- that's really how they felt, I think. Uh, however crazy it may sound to us, and however crazy I think it objectively is, so, you know, that's why I was talking about this, about what about this, is that I think one reason why people lack empathy is because they have this view where basically they exaggerate the extent to which other states are bad relative to us. And I think if they had a more proportionate view about how bad those states are relative to us, they would be, it would be easier for them to have the sort of empathy that they need to in order to avoid this kind of stuff when they make foreign policy decisions. I just want to um, clarify one thing about your, your view here. So it's the thought that the U.S. and other members of NATO, earlier members of NATO, should not have allowed NATO to expand because it would prompt this reaction from Russia. Is that the whole of the argument? Because I also hear people say things that are sort of nebulous and might import more normative content, such as that, well, it's within Russia's sphere of influence or something like that, which suggests a right to rule or, or something. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think spheres of influence are legitimate. I do think that, as a matter of fact, they are reality. You know, like great powers do tend to think that they have some kind of special rights to what happened in their neighborhood, and I, I don't think that Russia is special in that respect. What makes Russia more special is that it's a weak, and as you were talking about earlier, it's a declining great power. And so it doesn't have the means to its ambitions, but it's not really spe- what makes it special is not really that it wants to have a say, a special say in what happens in its neighborhood. A great power like the U.S. doesn't need to, at least not anymore, to engage, for instance, in armed intervention because it has enough soft power so that it won't have to. You know, it can get what it wants without doing that sort of things, not just in its immediate neighborhood, but even way further than that because it's so, it's so powerful. My argument is certainly not that the Russians have a right to determine, you know, the geopolitical orientation of Ukraine, for instance. My argument is that 
we should have taken into account their concerns, you know, their fear of NATO expansion. Like, I think that even after we expanded NATO in the 1990s to Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, and Hungary, and even after even after we um, expanded to seven other countries, including the Baltic countries, which used to be part of the Soviet Union, although the U.S. and most other Western nations never recognized that fact after they were annexed. So they had kind of a different status than the other Soviet republics. Yeah, I don't think it was too late yet, but I do think it made things more difficult. So, I'm, for instance, you know, if you look at the first round of enlargement of NATO expansion, of course, I mean, personally, I think it would have been even better if we had not done it at all. And if we had put together a new European security structure that was inclusive of Russia in the 1990s after the Cold War. For instance, if we had expanded NATO, but we had done it later, I do think it would have helped a lot. Because the thing is that it would have helped shape the perceptions of the Russian elites, political elites, that we weren't out to get them. The timing was important. Another thing, this is a, a complicated topic and it's difficult to talk about it in a subtle enough way because but people tend to simplify things. You know, when it comes to NATO expansion in Russia, it's not NATO expansion per se that the Russians opposed. What they opposed, what really freaked them out and, and worried them, is their exclusion from important decisions on European security. And NATO expansion was the main mechanism by which they were excluded gradually from the decision-making process. So they didn't, in fact, they didn't oppose NATO expansion per se. In fact, on several occasions, and people think they were not serious, but they're wrong. You know, the evidence is overwhelming that they were very serious. They actually proposed that Russia join NATO. So they were not so much opposed to NATO expansion as much as they wanted to be first. Because their opposition to NATO expansion is, to a significant extent, uh, linked, connected to questions of status. They really care about their status. And, you know, what you said earlier is very true. They fear decline. And this is a major trauma in their thinking. They were not opposed to NATO expansion, but they wanted to be first to join, for instance. Or at least after the first round, they wanted to be the next one, you know, because they thought it was humiliating for a great country like Russia to come after, you know, the Baltic country, for instance. You know, in 2000 or 2001, James Baker was a U.S. Secretary of State under Bush, uh, Bush uh, 41. He wrote an article where he argued that we should just bring in NATO, uh, Russia into NATO. And, you know, this is a person who had been a proponent of expansion in the 1990s. And here he was making the case. And, of course, he said this will require a transformation of NATO, but that's fine. You know, NATO has already been transformed after the end of the Cold War. And so coming back to what I was saying, the argument was that, look, Again, what the Russians fear is not so much NATO expansion per se as being excluded from decision-making, you know, on important decisions on security in Europe. And NATO expansion, the logic of NATO expansion was that gradually NATO would come to include all of Europe except Russia that would be left alone facing NATO. And so it's the exclusion from European security structure that really worried the Russians. And the fact that we did that anyway, despite their objections, it had a big effect on Russian perceptions of our intentions toward them. And it fueled their paranoia. And, you know, this is a political culture that's inclined naturally already to paranoia. And we fueled it by this stuff. This wasn't inevitable. So that's the argument I'm making. If they hadn't been progressively convinced that we were ought to get them, 
it would have affected also their future actions, is what I'm saying. To give you a, an example of, of what we did and why this convinced the Russians that we had like bad intentions toward them, we were not really looking to be friends with them and, and to collaborate, etc. Is what happened after the first round of NATO expansion, which was opposed by Russia, but Russia was weak and couldn't stop it. So they just looked like fools, basically. They made a lot of noise, and the noise actually made it worse because when they were protesting NATO expansion in very of like pretty heavy rhetoric, anti-West rhetoric, etc., it just fueled the argument of people who were supporting NATO expansion because they said, ah, see, listen to their rhetoric. This is proof that the old imperialist Russia is still there under the appearances, and so we should expand NATO to protect as a guarantee against this imperialism. So it actually was totally counterproductive from the point of view of Russia. And Putin, when he arrived, when he became president, he, he understood this. And so people have forgotten, but Putin had a pretty pro-West policy when he arrived, especially after 9-11. Basically, Putin's reasoning was this. He was like, look, we try to oppose NATO expansion, but the truth is that if the West decides to expand NATO, there is nothing we can do to prevent it because we're just too weak. It just makes us look like fools if we oppose it and use this anti-West rhetoric to oppose it. And then, you know, it happens anyway. It actually speeds things up because, like I said, this fuels the arguments of people who support expansion. And it happens anyway, and it exposes our weakness and our powerlessness. So his reasoning was like, so we, we need to stop this. What we're going to do instead is that we're going to keep telling NATO that we think expansion is a bad idea. It's not conducive to better security for anyone in Europe, not just Russia, but also Europeans. So they, they, they said, you know, we still think it's a bad idea, but we're going to stop opposing it. Instead of opposing it, we're going to try to accompany the process. And the reasoning, the calculus was that by not opposing the process, but instead, you know, agreeing to it, we're going to convince NATO to create a partnership with us. And so that way we won't be excluded from decision-making. And it looked at first like it was working because in 2002, because of thanks to this attitude, NATO uh, signed an agreement with Russia and created something called the NATO-Russia Council. And the idea was that before there was something like called the, I forgot the name of this thing. It was something that was created by the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997. So basically there was a permanent council where Russia was facing NATO as a bloc. It was supposed to foster collaboration on a number of issues. But it was Russia versus NATO as a bloc. And in 2002, the new agreement was that we're going to have this new NATO-Russia council. And instead of it being Russia versus NATO as a whole, it's going to be 19 plus 1. It's going to be Russia plus all of the NATO countries individually. But we're going to take decisions together. It won't be NATO versus Russia. It will be each NATO country individually plus Russia, those countries are going to make decisions in this council together. Uh, it won't be, again, like a bloc versus Russia. And that was a deal, you know, and we signed a deal to, to create this. And so it looked as though the Russian strategy of not opposing NATO expansion so that they could get instead this kind of partnership where they would be included in the decision-making process worked. Except that what happened is that even though formally it was 19 plus 1 and not, you know, NATO as a bloc versus just Russia alone, what happened is that the U.S. 
coordinated with other NATO countries before each meeting of this council so that we would first decide a, a common position first before we talk to the Russians. And then we would arrive, even though formally it was 19 plus 1, in practice, it was still NATO as a bloc versus Russia alone. So we basically fooled them. You know? We told them it wasn't going to be like that, and formally it wasn't like that anymore. But then we did it anyway because the U.S. insisted that before each meeting with the Russians, NATO first decides you know, a common position, and then you know, the Russians will be presented with this united front. Thomas Graham was the main advisor on, of Bush on Russia, of Bush 43, told this story about how he tried to convince the U.S. administration, of which he was part, that, look, I mean, why don't we try on at least one topic, just one, just once, to use this council in the way we promised the Russians that we were going to use it, you know, that is, not coordinate with other NATO members ahead of the meeting to have a common position and to have a, a united front against Russia, but instead show up and hash out our differences, you know, the different views so that sometimes you would have Russia with France arguing for one position versus the US and Poland, say, and sometimes going to be the US and Russia against France and, and uh, Italy or whatever, you know, like the way it was supposed to work. But he said that he argued for this. He made the case for at least trying on at least one topic for this. And he never managed to convince people in the U.S. administration to do this. So no, put yourself in the shoes of the Russians. They have actually tried to have a constructive attitude. They, have, they haven't like criticized the second round of NATO expansion. They have made a conscious effort not to do this, precisely in exchange so that we, they, we would like agree to a partnership with them that would involve them in decision-making process. And then it looks, we agreed to this formally. And, you know, we, we signed an agreement with them, setting up a council, a decision-making process that will get the Russian this. And then in practice, we use it in a way that completely makes this agreement you know, meaningless. Uh, you know, and of course the Russians saw that. And they were like, look, I mean, what the hell? You know, just like, we we try to play nice and then you do you do us like this, you know, basically. That was the idea, you know. And they have a point, you know, it's just like, you know, people the problem is that people don't know any of that stuff because it's not something that you know, m- most people don't read books about like the intricacies of like post-Cold War Western Russia relations, because it's a pretty obscure topic and nobody has even heard of this. Uh, you know, 99.9% of people have never heard of the NATO-Russia Council of 2002 and this kind of stuff. But, you know, the Russians, they know about this stuff, obviously. And, yeah, at least the ones who are in charge. And they resent it. And, and you look, if you look at the facts, it's hard to blame them for resenting them. And, and so the problem is that because they lack empathy and they lack, of course, first, they lack people like don't know about this stuff. So there's a problem. There's a lack of knowledge. But this lack of knowledge creates a lack of empathy that, that makes it more difficult to compromise. And this inability to compromise in turn just fuels this paranoia of the Russians and gradually got us to the, the point we are where we are now. And, and so this is my argument. My argument is not that the Russians have a moral right to control what the Ukrainians do and stuff. No, it's just that we it didn't have to be this way. We, we, if we had been smarter and had shown more empathy, had been more willing to take seriously their concerns, even when their concerns reflected a lot of paranoia, we could have Instead of 
affecting their perceptions of our intentions toward Russia in an adverse way, we could have convinced them that actually our intentions were not as bad as they think, you know? You do make an, a really good point with the example of the Russia-NATO collaboration. So that that is an interesting example. But if we're going to talk about empathy, what do you say about what that means for our for our policy toward Eastern Europe? Like, who do have reasons to be afraid of Russia? Are we just going to have to say, well, sorry, you're not that important and we're not going to get our policy tangled up trying to protect you? Um, Russia's got nukes, so uh, that's just too bad. You want you want in. You want collective security. We're, we can't help you. Or what is? Yeah, that's that. Yeah. Okay. No. No. I mean. I mean. You know. It is part of this. You know. There are several things. First of all, yes, I do think it's an important consideration. If you're American, or you know French for that matter, the fact of the matter is that there is one country in the world, just one, not two, not three, but just one that can destroy the United States, and it's Russia. Because there is no other country that has a nuclear arsenal to do that. No other country than Russia. So I do think it's something that, in that sense, getting good relations with Russia is more important than getting good relations with, say, Poland. This is just a fact, you know, and like, I'm not saying, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this means that you can throw Poland totally under the bus, that you should be fine with, say, Russia invading Poland. But on, in general, like it's just more important for the U.S., for U.S. national security to have better relations with uh, Russia than with Poland. Now, again, I don't mean, I don't think it means that we should agree to, like, say, Russia recovering, you know, its sphere of influence in, in Eastern Europe and say, you know, have, a, have control, you know, invade Poland or, you know, that's the extreme version or, you know, at least the less extreme version have control over its important foreign policy decisions, you know, its geopolitical orientation. But the reason why I think this is kind of like a, this is, this wasn't a real issue, you know, because again, Russia was too weak for this. Like nobody thought, not even the Poles in the 90s thought that Russia was going to invade them. And, and it wasn't a realistic concern, in my opinion, that Russia would regain anytime soon the kind of influence it had at the time of the Soviet, of the socialist bloc. It's too weak, you know, and it wasn't even in the best case scenario, it wasn't going to get powerful enough to do that, to have that kind of pull for a very long time. So there was no urgency. So what I would have said to the Eastern Europeans is, is look, Russia is the only country that has a nuclear arsenal that can literally destroy our country. So it's more important for us to have good relations with Russia. But moreover, you're not in any immediate danger. You know, you're not going to get invaded by Russia. It's just ridiculous anytime soon. Uh, but even like more subtle forms of influence, Russia is really too weak. Again, we're in the 90s. Uh, you know, honestly, even now, but it's just too weak to do that sort of thing. So look, there is no urgency. If The fact that like, because like I said, you know, even if you wanted to expand NATO, you didn't have to do it then. So I, you could have told them, look, I mean, the, if we don't, Bring them, bring you into NATO right now. You're not facing any immediate threats. If we don't do it now, it doesn't mean that you're going to fall back into under Russian domination. That's just 
That's just not a realistic concern. But, you know, on the other hand, it will be good for you too if we convince the Russians that we don't have bad intentions toward them. Because then we can have a more cooperative policy relations with them. And everyone will benefit. Nobody benefits, nobody's security benefits if the Russians feel alienated and don't just feel, but in fact are isolated from uh, the European uh, uh, security architecture and then lash out. Nobody benefits from the war in, in Ukraine right now. Like This is not in anybody's interest. It's certainly not in Europe's interest and not in Eastern Europe's interest, which is going to major disaster economically for them. They have like double-digit inflations. Many of them are probably going to be in a recession or in any rates, their growth is going to be cut down significantly. This is going to last years, by the way, because the energy supply problem is not going to disappear overnight. You know, like we're going to have to get our gas by making crazy beads on the LNG suppliers. It's going to be extremely expensive. And because the supply of LNG is very inelastic, it's going to be years before there is enough supply. To What's uh, LNG? LNG is uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, so that's, you know, you, you can transport it by boat so you don't have to use pipelines and have the source nearby. That's what drives me crazy about this. I'm not arguing that we should have just thrown the the Eastern Europeans under the bus. What I'm saying is that there was just no immediate threat and there was not even a, a threat in the foreseeable future for those guys because Russia was just too weak. And even in the best case scenario for Russia, that is, it was going to remain too weak for a very long time. So it was in the best interest of everyone to focus on creating good relations with Russia and bringing Russia into the West, which I really think we could have done. You know, that's also Baker's argument in this paper I was talking about where he was arguing that we should invite Russia to join NATO, which, you know, the Russians repeatedly asked again. And they were serious. You know, I know most people don't even know that, that they ask. Every single leader since Gorbachev, Russian leader, as asked to join NATO. And every one of them was dead serious about it. There is this misconception that they just said that, but they weren't serious. No, no, no. Gorbachev was serious about it. Yeltsin several times asked it. He was so serious that we know now, you know, based on like memoirs and stuff, that when he told Clinton he wanted to join, he asked his services, uh, the Russian administration, to think about what the implications would be for China. And so they probed the Chinese about whether they would freak out, you know, if suddenly NATO was on their border, because if Russia joined NATO, that that would happen. Which, by the way, tells you something about people who say that the Russians are not really concerned about uh, NATO being on their border. Of course, they thought it was a, a genuine source of concern, so much so that they actually probed the Chinese when they thought about joining NATO. We either ignore them when they asked, Oh, we said, oh, you know, we can't do this at the moment. You know, we'll talk about it later. And then we just, it's interesting to read the memos that were written at the time. Privately, people in the West, so like the British, for instance, were insistent that Russia could never join NATO. And the US was like, okay, yeah, we disagree with that. You know, I mean, you know, not so much that they won't join, but the US insisted that they should not say that to the Russians because they understood that the Russians needed to believe that they could be part of the club at one point. because, But, you know, we weren't upfront with them. We, we made them think uh, in the 90s that NATO expansion, if it happened at all, would happen much more gradually than it did. And suddenly what the Russians realized it was going to happen soon, 
as a result of it was it was not just pure deception on the part of the US. A lot of it was just uh bad communication and also the fact that as I mentioned earlier, even within the US administration, many people didn't understand that NATO expansion was policy until after it had become de facto policy of the governments. Bringing Russia into the West, that sounds like an idealistic thing because it sounds like you're talking about using foreign policy to change the internal nature of Russia. Yes. So that's that's actually, that's an interesting point because, you know, I think I mentioned at the beginning that to some extent those the realist and idealist labels were kind of misnomers because in, in some cases a realist actually sound more idealistic in the ordinary sense of the term than the idealist. And this is an example. Like my, the policy that I think we should have conducted, it wasn't meant to directly change the Russian regime at the time. It was to change our perception of our intentions toward them. I do think that it would likely have had an effect on domestic policy, but I think we have much less impact on domestic policy than we like to think. I don't want to do that to change the internal domestic policy of Russia. I mean, I, I think as be Russia becomes rich, I think it will happen at some point, but, but that's not the point. The point is to change Russia's perceptions of our intentions toward them and to also give them a stake in the European security architecture that we're building after the Cold War so that it becomes in their interests to cooperate with us rather than to oppose us. And this is independent of the form of their government domestically. Even after it had taken a decisive like authoritarian term, which started already in the 90s, but certainly was the case, you know, increasingly during uh, Putin's second terms and even started during his first term. I don't think that this would have prevented cooperative policies between Russia and us because again, you know, I think what was key here was to convince, was to give a stake to the Russians into the system we were building, for one, and also to convince them that we didn't have the kind of bad intentions that some people in Russia suspected we had toward them. And, you know, increasingly, what's interesting is that at first it was mostly paranoia, and to a large extent it still is. But, you know, as they perceived our intentions toward them as getting worse and worse, as their perception of our intentions towards them got worse. Increasingly, they started to react to this in a bad way and to do things that would actually, it would make all of this a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because they believed that our intentions towards them were worse than they actually were, they did certain things that actually caused their intentions toward them to become actually worse. And this in terms, it became a vicious circle. And so the goal of the policy I'm defending here that I think we should have had at the time is not, again, to change the nature of the Russian regime. It's mostly to give them a stake in the European security architecture we were building after the end of the Cold War. It would have had, eventually, a, a liberalizing effect. But that's way down the line. It's a long-term thing, and that's not why I'm, I'm doing it. You know, I, I think we should have done that. I think we should have done that because, again, this is a country that has like enough nukes to destroy all, all of us. And also because even though it's weak, it has enormous spoiling power. And people need to understand this too. This is the weird thing, you know, because for years, my argument against anti-Russia hoax, my main argument, and I've had like so many debates when I was making that point, is that, look, Russia is way too weak to represent a threat to us, a conventional threat to us. 
If you look at its GDP, industrial production, etc., defense spending, it's just too weak to pose a serious threat to NATO or even Europe alone. But no, after the war started, I found myself in a weird situation where after years of arguing with people who, in my opinion, completely exaggerated the threat posed by Russia because they exaggerated Russia's power, I found myself in the position of having to remind people that Russia is not as insignificant as they think because the war and the fact that Russia failed so badly in Ukraine, I think has called a bad case of hubris in a lot of people. And now they think that, you know, we don't have to worry about Russia at all. And I think this is wrong because even though Russia is a very weak country in many ways, first of all, it still has this nuclear arsenal I was talking about, which is something we definitely should be concerned about. Not because they're going to, I think they're going to deliberately start a nuclear war. This is ridiculous. They're not going to do this. But because, you know, you never know how through a, the unforeseen consequences of a chain of action, things may spiral out of control and result in a nuclear exchange, even though nobody wanted it. So this is the risk here. And another thing is that even if you put aside the chance of a nuclear exchange through some kind of like uncontrolled escalation scenario, like I was just talking about, people need to understand that even though Russia is very weak in many ways, as a small GDP, small defense spending compared to the rest of NATO, etc., it has enormous spoiling power. The problem is that people think that Russia is already as bad as it can be. And they are very wrong about this. Like, Russia is not as bad as it can be. Russia has collaborated with us on many issues over the past decades since the end of the Cold War. In particular, it has collaborated on, on non-proliferation. And you need to understand that the non-proliferation agenda is dead without Russia's cooperation. And of course, it's also in Russia's interest to prevent proliferation because, you know, they benefit from being part of the very exclusive club of nuclear powers and part of the even more exclusive club of countries. There are only two of them with enough nukes to, you know, basically destroy the world. Not destroy the world, it's an exaggeration, but you know, you know what I mean. Like certainly have a second try capability, for instance. Like, you know, even if you nuke Russia, they can still nuke you back. Uh, and vice versa. And this is not the case for France, for instance, at least not to the same extent. And so so Russia has an interest in preventing proliferation, but if we push them, if we drive them against the wall too much, they may decide at some point, you know, so for instance, they were instrumental in pressuring Iran in not developing a nuclear weapon a few years ago. And if we drive them up against the wall, they may decide that, okay, maybe we should stop cooperating on non-proliferation, and then we'll be in big trouble. Things that we really don't want to happen will start happening. So that's one thing, but there are many other things. I mean, it's a huge country. They control a huge part of Eurasia, the Eurasian landmass, and this means that they can smuggle weapons, for instance, to in a lot of places and create a huge mess in a lot of different places. And, you know, and so far they haven't been doing this because, you know, they, it wasn't in the interest to do this. But if we try and turn them into a guy in Iran or a guy in North Korea, you know, may, maybe this calculus will change too. So, you know, my point is that you need to understand that even though in a sense Russia is extremely weak, it has enormous spoiling power if it decides that it's not in its interest to cooperate with us, even in a minimal fashion, as it has sometimes more than a minimal fashion in, in previous years. 
So we can't dismiss Russia just like this, you know. The fact that it's it's weak doesn't mean that you can ignore it. It still remains important for all sorts of reasons. Of course, it also has a seat, a permanent seat at the Security Council, etc. So, you know, people don't take that into account enough, you know. And, and that's because one of the reasons, I think, is not just because they make this flawed inference from the fact that it's weak in terms of GDP, etc., to the fact that it can create serious problems for us, which is false. You know, it can. But I think it's also because people are so convinced of our moral superiority that makes them immune to this kind of considerations. They don't want to hear any about anything about this sort of things. Like, look, Russia is just wrong. We should just, it's not just that we can, but we should dismiss their concerns because they're just bad. It's immoral to take into account their concerns. But really, that's, that's how people think about these things. And, and that's why I was talking about earlier, about why there is a place for some whataboutism. Because if people have a more proportionate view of the relative badness of Russia or China, for that matter, and don't exaggerate the extent to which they're worse than us, I think it will make it easier psychologically for them to listen to their concerns and take them into account. One thing... I've heard you say is that it's been a disaster that World War II is everybody's go-to analogy, especially in the United States. It's like just this moral reference point of you got to stand up and destroy the evil dictator. And it's true that this is invoked against anyone who shows any kind of dovish tendencies against any kind of authoritarian anywhere in the world. But you could also look at other examples. Like what if the Cuban Missile Crisis had the same place as the go-to reference point for how we thought about foreign policy? Well, then it wouldn't be, it'd be a very different story. It would be not who's going to stand up to Putin, but who's going to defuse the situation. That would be a very different way of talking about it. But if this is still going on in the 2024 presidential election, it's going to be debating who will be tougher on Putin and not who will defuse the situation. Yes, this, this is a point I often make. You know, I, I joke that it's been a disaster for humanity, that World War II has become like the sole reference, historical reference for those debates, you know. And so you're, you know, I think you summarized it very well. What I've been arguing before is that even if we reject those countries' values, as I do, as an, virtually everyone in this debate does, it doesn't follow that we should dismiss our concerns. And, and it doesn't follow either from the fact that those concerns are often based on false beliefs or at least exaggerated beliefs. And the problem is that every time you make that sort of argument, people will call that appeasement. Appeasement has become effectively a term of abuse. You know, Any argument of that sort will be met by this accusation that you're engaging in, in appeasement. Of course, this puts an end to the conversation because you know, who is going to defend you know, appeasing Hitler? But the problem is that there has been many, many different situations in history. Not all of them are analogous to the, the run-up to World War II. And, and, you know, not every authoritarian country, you know, has some plan for, like, worldwide domination and is about to engage in some kind of, like, imperial conquest projects. So, you, you know, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. There are so many other examples. But, and, and vice versa, you know, on, on, and conversely, what they the opposite of what they call 
appeasement, that is having a, an aggressive response to other states, has often led to war. I think it's just dumb to go back to one example, just one historical example, and try to argue that based on that one example, you can determine what you should do to deal with current issues, current international relations crisis. Again, if you expand your historical horizon beyond World War II, you will find that it's more complicated than that. Sometimes what people call appeasement has actually helped. Sometimes it hasn't. Sometimes the opposite of what they call appeasement has helped. And sometimes it hasn't. You know, it has made the debate really dumb. And also it has moralized it. And when I say moralized it, I don't mean that what I'm saying is amoral. Ultimately, the reason why I find a realist foreign policy is for moral reasons. So when I say the moralization of the debate, I don't mean that morality has no place in this debate. I think it's very relevant to this debate. What I mean is that, you know, I was reading a, an article by Bertrand Russell recently where he was recounting his experience during World War I because during World War I, he was a pacifist. He was against the war. And he talks about the psychological difficulty of arguing for peace in the atmosphere at the time of jingoism and, you know, warmongering. And, and I thought it, it was striking how similar it is to the current atmosphere. Of course, you know, we're not directly at war, but as you were saying, you know, anyone who has even a little bit of a dovish approach to the situation is going to be accused, you know, of appeasement, of being a, a Putin shield of that sort of things, you know. And Russell in this article, he talks about how the most shocking thing to him about the war was how it destroyed intelligence. Even previously intelligent people started to have a very simplistic discourse and, and they hid behind what he calls a, a lofty and primitive morality. And this is what I call by the moralization of the debate, you know, assuming that someone who disagreed with you about how we should respond to Russia's or China's actions, disagreed with you on some basic moral facts, you know, that, for instance, like wars of conquest are bad and et cetera. And this just makes people dumb. And this is exactly, you know, this type of intellectual environment where, you know, there is no tolerance for dissent. Dissenters are going to be like abused and called all sorts of names. You know, we, we know, we've talked about conservatism in academia before, you know, that's the same people who have this kind of attitude on foreign policy. They're the first one to talk about the bad consequences of this type of intellectual environments. For instance, for ideological uniformity and how this can result in like a bad epistemic situation in science and academia, but they don't see it when it comes to foreign policy. It's, it's pretty striking. What I'm saying is that you can't conduct foreign policy purely based on like a bunch of very simplistic moral principles. Okay, you know, we can all agree that wars of conquest are bad, but once you've said that, you know, it, it doesn't have any obvious implication to foreign policy. And if you think it does, it's because you haven't been thinking hard enough about the issue. And I, I would like people to understand this. And even if they disagree with me, for instance, about the relative merits of making conciliatory gestures or taking into account the concerns of non-liberal states, even when those concerns are ill-founded or stem from ideological consideration that we reject, 
even if people disagree with this, I would like them to at least consider the possibility that this might be true before they choose their course of action. And that's why I think that it will help because it will help them psychologically to do this. If they reflect more on the various ways in which we ourselves, I mean the West in general, often behave badly internationally. It's not just about the war in Iraq. The point is, if people just reflected on the fact that we too have often had very destructive policies and so that we are not all white, it would make it easier for them to not dismiss the concerns of other states, especially non-liberal states, which I think would actually be conducive to uh, foreign policy that has better out- results in better outcomes for everyone. And so that that's kind of what, what I would like to conclude with. You know, Look, I, again, I'm not even asking that people agree with me that we should take seriously and take into account in, our, in formulating our foreign policy, even the concerns of non-liberal states. But I would just, I would just like them to at least consider the possibility that not doing so is going to make things even worse. And, you know, if I can just achieve that, convince people of that, that would be good enough. Of course, I hope I can convince them of that it's actually a good idea sometimes to take into account the concerns of non-liberal states. But at least I would like them to consider the possibility that not doing so might just make things worse. It's not moral relativism to give up on a sort of addiction to bivalent divisions of the world the free world and the unfree world or something like that, terror states and non-terror states, where you look at it and you think, well, even the free world, you know, different countries in that description are free in different ways and some more so than others. And you have a gradation of different levels of freedom. It's not like there's this sharp divide. And likewise, what country hasn't done something that could plausibly be called terror at some point? Dividing things up into these uh, black and white, and then it's it, the black is all black and the white is all white. I think there are features of human psychology that make that attractive and make people see easy solutions where there are none. Yeah, I, I think that's um, another good way of putting it. It's definitely a, a big part of it. The point about moral relativism is, is really an important one and, and a key one, I think. I'm not a moral relativist at all. And what I'm saying is not premised on any kind of moral relativism. And I would like people to understand this, you know, if, because I think if they do, they will be more inclined to at least take seriously the kind of arguments that people like me have on, on these issues. Because I do think you're right that very often the reason why they reject the argument out of hand is because they don't really understand the argument and they think in particular that it's premised on some kind of moral relativism. And, and it's absolutely not true. And it's also not premised, because, you know, of course, I could reject moral relativism, but also argue that, you know, some kind of anti-liberal view is correct, but that's not really the case. Again, you know, I am broadly in support of individual rights, democracy, free markets, etc. But I just, this doesn't have any obvious implication about foreign policy, is what I'm saying. And we should avoid simplistic arguments on this topic, because I think that this often results in decision that makes things even worse, even from the point of view of someone who would like, you know, 
those things, you know, free markets, democracy, individual rights to to become uh, more widespread. So, yes, that's I think that's a good place to end. All right. Well, Philippe, it's been a pleasure. Same. Thanks for having me. All right. It's just Spencer now. I wanted to come back on for a postscript for two reasons. One is that this episode was more policy wonkish and overlooked some interesting philosophical questions or passed over them rather too quickly. And secondly, I think I do want to emphasize points where Philippe and I may disagree, because I think if you just listened to that edited conversation and heard nothing else, you might get the impression that we agree about everything. I do want to say that I think I am more idealistically inclined than Philippe, for some reasons I'll mention here in a minute. So the first thing I wanted to point out, an interesting philosophical thing, is Philippe was talking about how some of these foreign policy decisions sort of emerge without anyone making them until they're just, they just have sort of been assumed in the background before they're made explicit, but nobody can trace them to a particular decision-making point. And I think it would be an interesting research project in the philosophy of mind to consider whether that reflects the way things are within individual minds as well. I know there are people who've studied human psychology and tell us that a disturbing amount of our reasoning is post hoc and rationalizes what we've always thought anyway. So you've got the tail wagging the dog here. I don't think all of our reasoning is like that. We'd get into a skeptical dilemma if it were, but much of it is. And I wonder if there's anything about that that we can learn by studying this group sort of thinking. I wonder if it's sort of a, a macrocosm of what goes on in the microcosm of an individual mind. Now, a second thing I wanted to think about, so I mentioned I'm somewhat more idealistically inclined, and I certainly am idealistically inclined with regard to the, the truly philosophical question of what the national interest is. And I am inclined to understand it more broadly and moralistically. And I've got two arguments for that. So one of them is just that I don't define individual well-being narrowly, right? Like I don't think that an individual life in the experience machine, like absorbing all sorts of pleasure and fictitious experiences, I don't think that that is the best kind of life for someone to have. So that means I have to think that the range of value for an individual human life is, is broader than purely pleasure and avoidance of pain. So if I take that view with regard to individual people, why wouldn't I take it with regard to states? Because I think the state well-being is going to be the aggregation of the well-being of the subjects or citizens. So that's one argument. I also thought of this other thing, which is that what the national interest is depends on your conception of the nation and what the nation is for. And it seems to me like a realist foreign policy is going to be based on like a Hobbesian conception of the nation where you've got individuals who need protection in the state of nature. And there's this sort of contract to 
protect people or they agree to transfer their their power to the sovereign so that they can be protected. So if you've got something like that, then you can see that interests at the individual level are being defined quite narrowly. And so it would make sense that at the state level, they would be defined narrowly as well. And I'm thinking though, that one thing that's left out of that picture is this idea that national identity is like a source of, of meaning. It has sort of non-tangible goods that people get out of it. And if you think that, then it seems to me that using the like logic of appropriateness or appropriateness reasoning occasionally might actually be necessary for maintaining the state and its basic functions. So it seems to me that what the examples that we discussed showed is not that appropriateness reasoning is always bad, but that you should reason with the consequences about the consequences as well, right? So the problem is when the intuitions of appropriateness crowd out all other thinking, right? I think you should think about all of the consequences, but then maybe once you've done that, you should decide what to do based on this is just not who we are, depending on the circumstances. So like, imagine you've got a really large, powerful country pressuring a smaller country to do something terrible, maybe participate in a genocide, but you could even have less extreme examples, like perhaps bleeding Belgium in World War I is such an example where Germany wanted to walk through Belgium into France and Belgium decided to put up a fight, even though it seems like this is not in their self-interest to do. Nonetheless, it seems like there's something to be said for taking that sort of heroic course of action. And even something to be said from the standpoint of national self-interest, if you define it broadly enough. So think of what ancestors would you rather have? Would you rather have ancestors who put up a fight and said, death before dishonor? Or would you rather have ancestors that said, well, dishonor for death? It's right here on the Excel spreadsheet, what the national interest is. So you understand. And I guess we could understand. I guess we could forgive. But the result of our understanding and forgiving might be a nation that we're less proud of and that gives us less a sense of personal identity and that we're less likely to fight for and die for in the future. And consequently, we'll be less able to protect our narrow self-interest, the kind of self-interest that our national interests that realists care about. So my point is not to make this sort of deontology versus consequentialist, you know, intuition comparison here. My point is just that if you think about what the national interest might require, it might require reasoning in accordance with the logic of appropriateness, at least sometimes. So I leave that for your consideration. Now, Philippe acknowledged that sympathizing with authoritarian states or empathizing with those who are in those states, that can go too far. And I think Philippe and I are not going to draw that line in exactly the same place. And I thought here that this was a point that where I could, I could have pushed back more. It does seem to me that Russia might be more important than Eastern Europe, but it's also the case that there are some goods on the other side or some dangers on the other side that we had not fully added up. And I think Philippe would acknowledge this. So yielding to Russia 
prioritizing Russian interests because it's important to have a good relationship with Russia. In the long term, that might be a bad idea because not only are the interests of like Ukraine and the Baltic states and Poland at stake here, but what other countries do, you know, like other countries will get the signal that it's a good idea to expand your nuclear arsenal if that means that we absolutely have to take your concerns seriously. And uh, other countries will be even more eager than they already are to get their hands on nuclear weapons because it makes you one of the big players. So I think there's more there that we could have discussed. As far as uh, Philippe's like pro whataboutism, I'm somewhat ambivalent about this. So I get the appeal and the, the significance of insisting on uniform standards, not citing some rule that we ourselves have no intention to abide by or haven't in the past. That's hypocritical. However, now there's a term that annoys me when it comes up in like culture war stuff is both sidesism, which is pretty much a word that's thrown out to sort of shame anyone who wants to bring up some other side than the one who's deploying the, the word whataboutism. Often I think that word has the not so salutary effect of just discouraging people from thinking about other opinions. But I do see a point to it on occasion. And sometimes in foreign policy, I think that this kind of neutrality that realists want to adopt smacks of both sidesism in this way. And I kind of do think that when analyzing world events, the regime that's doing them just might be a salient fact here. Is this done by a free government in pursuit of its interests and its power or a more authoritarian government? And I, I think that trying to abstract away the nature of the actors might get us into a place where it does seem sort of relativistic. It does seem like it doesn't matter what kind of interests are being advanced by these sorts of power moves. I recall reading Daniel Ellsberg's book on U.S. nuclear policy called The Doomsday Machine, which is very good, and I do recommend reading it. It's extremely alarming, some of the information in there. But one thing that disturbed me is the way he would, for one, always seem to cast the Soviet Union in this sort of reactive role. And the U.S. was sort of making the Soviet Union do this thing. And it was always the U.S. that prompted the escalation or whatever it was. And I suppose it's possible that the freer of the two countries domestically could be, you know, the worst actor uh, in terms of behavior with nuclear weapons and bellicosity and this kind of stuff. But it seems strange to me that Although he did mention that you have more freedoms in the U.S. and the Soviet Union was really repressive in a couple of places, it didn't seem to have any real role in his analysis. Like if the two regimes would have been switched, like the U.S. was a super repressive country and the Soviet Union was the freest country on earth, but the nuclear maneuverings had been the same, the analysis would have been the same. And maybe that's right. I don't know enough about this to say that Ellsberg's analysis is wrong, but I do want to register my suspicion that it seems to me like, at least in terms of who's to blame for what, we do want to know what kind of regime is, is doing this and for what purposes. To try to look at this through a completely neutral lens, I do think is abstracting away from some important moral content.
And finally, I want to say, we didn't really get into the details here of what to do now as much as I would have liked. It was a lot of it was retrospective about NATO expansion. I don't have Philippe here to comment on this, although I'm sure he will elsewhere. But I do favor supporting the Ukrainians with weapons. I am also afraid of doing things like putting up a, a no-fly zone that might put us directly in confrontation with Russia. We spent the entire Cold War avoiding direct confrontation with Russia. And I think for very good reason, we should avoid it now. But I still support doing what we can to support them in what I think is a righteous war for national independence. And that is all I have. Thank you so much to anyone who has listened this far.